We read together in the book of Hebrews, uh, in chapter 10, beginning at verse 32 and reading through into chapter 11 uh, and breaking off at uh, verse 7 in chapter 11. Hear the word of God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, faith is the, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Thank you, Eric. Please do keep that passage open in front of you, page 1007 in the Church Bibles. Let me say hello. It's good to see you this morning. Um, my name's Roger, if you don't know me. Um, and let me pray for God's help as we come to his words. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, you tell us we have need of endurance. And so I pray that everything I say and everything we think about as we listen and talk about afterwards would help us to endure, help us to keep trusting you all the days of our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was chatting to uh, one of the primary school-aged children at Chalmers, and they said, in a moment of real honesty, I'm not sure I really want to be a Christian. Oh, I said, why is that? Answer, because it means you stand out at school. This child had realized they believe different things, they have to behave in different ways, And they said, I don't like being the odd one out. I don't like standing out from the crowd. It was actually quite a moving moment. I really felt for them. I agreed with them. I said, it's not easy at all being a Christian when it can feel like lots of people are not. It can be uncomfortable. It can feel hard. I said, I remember feeling like that myself at school, albeit secondary school for me. Then in an attempt to cheer them up, I asked them another question, which was this. Is there anything good about being a Christian? Now, we'll come back to their answer in a moment. But even that first half of the conversation made a big impression on me. It really struck me that this young child, in their own small way, was already facing the kind of challenge and discomfort that if you've been a Christian for a while, in our culture, you'll know. And the same kind of challenge, actually, that the Hebrew church knew. They were facing it in the first century. The challenge of not fitting in, having to stand out, taking stick for being associated with Jesus. Just look back to chapter 10, verses 32 to 35. We saw this last week, that these, these Christians were suffering and facing shame for being publicly Christian. Verse 32, recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. Robin pointed out last week that this was a church that needed to keep going. They needed endurance. The Christian life, it's not a brief sprint, it's a long distance endurance race, a marathon. And this church needed to keep going with sticking out and suffering for being known as Christians. These days in Scotland, that endurance race begins as early as primary school. But of course, it doesn't begin in, sorry, it doesn't end in primary school. It may begin there. A number of folk across the church family have mentioned in the last few weeks how having a Christian in the public media spotlight at the moment through the SP elections has led to a number of conversations with colleagues or family members in recent weeks. And those conversations haven't always been easy. Now, let's be in no doubt. The fact that people are asking, what do you Christians actually believe, or do you believe what that lady says, is actually a really good thing in many ways. It's something we should be thankful for. 
But of course, sometimes those conversations can be hard ones because they come sometimes with criticism or misunderstanding or rejection or tension attached. If people don't like what Jesus says, they may not like what we say. And so we have need of endurance. But actually, it's not just primary school or SP elections where the endurance challenge is felt. Uh, some of our undergraduate students were studying that passage in chapter 10, and they said it's really hard being the only Christian on a sports team or a university hall. It'd be so much easier just to blend with the crowd. Likewise, those settling into retired life face the challenge about are they still going to live with Christian priorities in a way shaped by the gospel? Still being known as a Christian? Still serving sacrificially? Or do you just go with the flow and do what your friends are doing? You have need of endurance. We could go on and on with examples. Um, you see, I've got an outline on the back of the sheet you were given, uh, if, if it didn't run out before you got here. Um, <laughs> those of you who have got a sheet, you'll see the question at the top. Um, at what age or stage are we most at risk of shrinking back from faith-filled living for Jesus? That language of shrinking back comes from verse 39 of chapter 10. We're not of those who shrink back. And as I've pondered this kind of what age or stage is the most likely for, for that temptation to shrink back, it strikes me it's really any age in the Christian life, any stage. There's the teenager who previously enjoyed Sunday club, youth church, but is now really tempted to join the sexual lifestyle or the drinking lifestyle of their friends who aren't Christians. There's the recent graduate who, as a student, was really involved in the Christian Union, was eager to pray for and take opportunities to speak of Jesus. But now in the work environment, they've hidden their Christianity in case it starts to affect their career progress or job security. Now no one in the office or the staff room even knows they're a Christian. Shrinking back. As the young adult who, so far, has always tried to put Jesus first in the big decisions of life, but they so long to be married, they're now beginning to wonder, does it really matter if a potential partner is a Christian or not? Or the stretched parents, who used to be involved in small groups and Sundays and serving, but they're now thinking, oh, we're pretty tired. There's a lot of other requests to do things on Sundays. Maybe we could put all of that church stuff on the back burner until the kids are grown up. There's the older person battling with ill health and the temptation to just disconnect from Christian fellowship because it's physically so much harder to engage or to link up. The middle-aged family who are wondering about moving out of town to get some cheaper, larger housing, even if that means they'll struggle to find a church where the Bible is taught, even if it means going to a church that just kind of goes with the cultural flow. Maybe part of them thinks, to be honest, that would be a relief not to stick out anymore. And you can come up with a hundred more examples like that. I hope actually over coffee and tea, we, we chat about what for you makes it hard to keep going as a Christian. Where do you need to endure and not shrink back? See, it's really easy to get tired of the cost of the Christian life, really tempting to shrink back from public allegiance to Jesus, to, from costly commitment to his people, easy to want to duck our heads below the parapet. And to all of these dangers, Hebrews says, verse 35 of chapter 10, 
Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Or verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, so far, let's do a quick recap. So far, how has Hebrews been motivating us to keep going? I'm not going to do the whole 11 chapters so far. Uh, just the last two weeks. So in the last two weeks, how has Hebrews motivated us? Um, well, well, verses 19 to 25, two weeks ago, gave us the positive motivation, reminded us how good we have it in Jesus. Do you remember the since we have, this kind of direct access to God now, nothing in the way, we can approach God's holy presence, since we have that. And, and since we have this high priest, Jesus, sat at God's right hand, representing us, interceding for us. Well, let's keep going. Let's draw near. Let's hold fast to him. Let's keep meeting each other, spurring each other on. That was the kind of positive. Christians, you've got it so good. Don't let go. That was two weeks ago. Then last week, we saw the flip side of the encouragement. We saw a deeply sobering warning, a scary warning. Having told us what we do have in Christ... Hebrews gave us a, like a glimpse over the parapet of if we walked away from Jesus, where would that leave us? Verses 25 to 31 were describing that. And it's proper scary. It would leave us with no sacrifice for sins, so no way to pay for our sin apart from on our own shoulders. It would lead us facing God's righteous indignation facing God as an enemy. And the point was, it may be painful when it feels like the whole school is against you. Imagine having the living God, the creator, against you. It may feel hard when, when you're in a conversation, you're thinking, oh no, is this going to mean the office thinks I'm kind of weird? Are they all going to turn against me? It is a whole lot worse having the God of the universe against us. And so therefore, the cost of being a Christian is small compared to the cost of not being a Christian, of rejecting Jesus. That's the last two weeks. And now we're into a passage that's all about faith. And we're going to see why in just a moment. But before I get to that, um, let me just finish that conversation I was telling you about. I promised you I'd come back to what this child says. Um, they'd said they, they were aware of the cost of being a Christian. I'd said... Do you think there are any good bits of being a Christian, any benefits? Then there was a long pause. And then an answer came. Well, I guess you get to go to God's new creation if you're trusting in Jesus. Now, that sounds like a great answer. And like biblically, content-wise, that is a great answer. It's just like in verse 35 of chapter 10, do not throw your confidence away, which has a great reward. Or verse 36, um, you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. It's a really good answer, biblically. Uh, it's worth it in the end, trusting Jesus. There'll be this reward, this promise, this new creation. Actually, what struck me most wasn't the kind of accurate content of the answer. It was the underwhelmed tone of the answer. I don't think I've ever heard a more dejected description of the fact that Jesus can get us to God's amazing new creation in my whole life. It was like, well, 
I know trusting Jesus means you get to go to God's new creation, so I guess that's something. (laughs) That was the tone. It struck me so much, because for that young believer, the cost that they could see in their little heart so outweighed this promised new creation that they could not see. I'm going to say that again, because in some ways that's the key to this morning. The cost they could see far outweighed in their heart at the moment the promises of God that they couldn't see. That is the cost of the playground dynamics or that uncomfortable sense of I don't quite fit in this class. That was visible to them today. They felt it. But this glorious, eternal world God is taking us to, where there's no suffering, no sickness, no tears, no death, this this eternal home of joy with God forever, it seemed a whole lot less real. To put it in other words, they were lacking in the faith department. They were lacking some conviction that God's promises about the new creation were real more real, more wonderful than even the most awkward of school playgrounds. And that kind of weak, struggling faith was exactly the situation the Hebrews were beginning to find themselves in. Just look with me at verse 34. And look at what previously had kept them going with joy. So verse 34. You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. See, back in the day, this church put up with some really difficult stuff and joyfully did it because they used to know they had a better, lasting possession. They used to be sure that what you gain with Jesus far outweighs what it costs to be known as one of his people. In other words, they used to live by faith. But the author can see they're getting weary. He can see that the eyes of faith are beginning to get dim. And so he says, you have need of endurance. Endurance in faith. In living, trusting what God says over what our eyes see. And that's what our passage is about this morning. It's actually what the whole of chapter 11 is about the next few weeks. Living by faith all the way until Jesus returns. Hopefully you can see faith is all over the passage, like verse 38, my righteous shall live by faith. Verse 39, we're not of those who shrink back, but those who have faith. 11 verse 1, now faith is, and then so on, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, all the way through chapter 11. This is all about faith, enduring in living by faith. And that's our first point uh, on the outline. Um, Until Jesus returns, you have need of endurance in living by faith. Now, living by faith is the life that pleases God. It's the way God wants us to live. It's God's will for our lives until Jesus comes back. And to prove that, he quotes from Habakkuk. Now, I don't know if you know much about Habakkuk. There was a series on him a while back, but we might not all have been there. Um, Habakkuk was a prophet who was pretty lonely, actually. He was living at a time when it was hard to stick with what God said was right and wrong, because so many people around him were ignoring what God said, even within the nation of Israel, ignoring God and seemingly getting away with it. So it looked to his eyes that God was doing nothing about it. God, don't you care? 
Don't you know? Aren't you going to do something? Aren't you watching what's going on? To which the answer came to Habakkuk. Firstly, it won't be long until I bring my judgment and justice. That's verse 37 here in our passage. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Or in other words, Jesus will come and judge the world. It's not long now. The second thing Habakkuk gets told is, how should you live in the meantime? And this is verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. When Jesus returns, what does God want from us? Well, he wants us to be living by faith. Jesus could return in our lifetimes, will return in someone's lifetime, and this is the kind of living to be enduring in until he comes back, living by faith. All of which begs the question, that was our first point, done and dusted, until Jesus' return, you you need endurance in living by faith. That begs the question, though, what does it actually mean to live by faith? I mean, if that's what God wants from us, it's his will for our lives until Jesus returns. If that's what pleases God, what God rewards, well, we need to know what it actually looks like. And that's what chapter 11 helps us with. In lots of ways, the whole of chapter 11 will help us with that. But we do get a definition in verse 1. So just look, this is our second point. What is faith? Here's a definition. Living by faith is living by trusting God about what we can't see. Living by faith is trusting God about what we can't see. And you can see I'm getting that from verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So living by faith is acting now on the basis of your trust in something you can't see. Notice those things could be future things. That's the assurance of things hoped for. Or they could be present things which are invisible. That's the conviction of things not seen. Living by faith is trusting God about what we can't see. Now at this point, I think it's helpful to step back and say, how does that complement the other things the Bible tells us about faith? This is a kind of different angle, and and perhaps this is an angle we don't think so much about. So if I was going to ask you, what's the biggest thing the Bible says about faith? Um, we're not going to go for call and response, but just think in your own heads. What would you go for? If you've been Christian for a while, you might say, oh yeah, I know that faith, Christian faith, is different to works. And you can be justified, declared righteous by faith alone in Jesus, not by works, what we do. And that's true, Romans 4, the righteous will live by faith. It's what pleases God. We'll see that again later on. Perhaps you might say, oh, no, I remember hearing that faith is always about the word of God. Faith is trusting the promises of God. It's always responsive to what God said. And again, that's completely true. Romans 10, faith comes through hearing the word. And we'll see that later on with Noah. He heard God's warning and he responded. So those are good, good true things about faith. They're in the background here. But I wonder if you've ever heard this one. I think I heard this personally again and again as a Christian student going to like lunch bars and outreach talks. The main thing I picked up about Christian faith is that it's not 
an irrational leap in the dark, but actually is a careful, considered following of the evidence. I've heard that in lots of kind of apologetic talks about Christianity. I think particularly in response to uh, the wave of new atheists like Richard Dawkins, who were so popular for a while, and they would repeatedly set up a straw man, a kind of caricature definition of faith. They would say faith, Christian kind of religious faith, is belief in the absence of evidence, perhaps even in spite of evidence. Faith is close your eyes, take a leap in the dark, it's totally irrational, it's throw your brain in the bin kind of faith. And rightly as Christians, we responded to that and said, hang on, hang on, hang on, we don't recognize that definition of faith. Not in the Bible, that's not Christian faith. Our faith isn't in spite of evidence, it's following evidence. So like John's Gospel, for example, he says he wrote it, and recorded miraculous signs and multiple testimonies from reliable witnesses precisely to enable people to believe, to believe beyond reasonable doubt. It's like a court case. Here's the evidence. Here's the witnesses. So in John, faith is following the evidence where it leads. Or Luke's gospel that we did last year. He wrote so that we could have certainty, careful, researched historical evidence and accounts so you can have certainty. So, the Bible does say faith thinks carefully and follows the evidence. But here's the thing, and I hope you're still with me. Sometimes when we're responding to critiques from the culture around us, sometimes we can swing too far the other way in response. Or we can fail to remember something else that the Bible says on a certain subject. And at least in my brain, this has happened with faith. See, I've spent so long listening to those arguments saying... Christian faith is always warranted belief. It's always following the facts about Jesus. It's just going where the eyewitnesses and their evidence is pointing. I spent so long thinking about that, I think I've forgotten that a key aspect of faith is having to trust someone's word on something I don't see. Let me give you an example. Have you ever done on a, like a cheesy team-building retreat? Have you ever done one of those trust exercises where you wear a blindfold and someone stands behind you and says, trust me, if you fall backwards, I will catch you? The point is, you can't see. That's why it's trust. That's why it's faith. You've got to take their word for it. See, faith is the conviction of things unseen. Faith is trusting God in the dark. It's not a leap in the dark, It's not that there's no evidence. There's actually loads of evidence of God's faithfulness to keep his word through the Bible. We've got every reason to trust him. It's not irrational, because John's gospel or Luke's gospel gives us plenty of reasons to trust that Jesus is who he says he is. It is warranted belief. But nevertheless, living by faith is about the times when we trust God for something we can't see. At which point the sceptic or the secular materialist might jump up and say, ha, I told you so. That's the problem with you religious types. You expect us to operate by faith. But I'm not a fan of faith. I rely on facts, science, data. Which, of course, isn't true. Not for anyone, actually, who lives as a human being. No human being lives without faith. It's impossible. It's just about 
what you trust. We take people's words on things all the time. We rely on faith all the time. So, for example, how do I know Australia exists? By faith. I've never been there. I've not conducted any personal empirical experiments, but I do trust the word of people who have been there and tell me it's there. What gives me confidence to sit down for dinner at home? Faith in Ikea. And the fact they tell me that this chair is reliable, it's got a little sticker saying it's passed some EU regulation. I'm not doing empirical strength tests every time I kind of lower myself down. I just trust. Far more importantly, how do do we know that anyone loves us? I really hope not by experimentation like polygraphs and kind of testing their blood pressure and pulse. I hope we trust people's word. Human beings live by faith all the time. The only question is, which voices do you believe? Faith is about being sure of something we've been told but can't see. It's hard, isn't it, in our culture, which is so image-driven and so now-driven, it's hard, actually, to live trusting God for something we can't see. Let's just apply this, because I realize so far it might all sound a bit abstract. Let me just apply it, because this is really practical and pastoral. I said that faith is trusting God in the unseen. That can be the unseen present things, the invisible things, or it can be the unseen future thing, the thing that hasn't happened yet. And in Hebrews, actually, we've had examples of both those things. So in terms of the unseen present, for the last five chapters, this book has been telling us about an amazing high priest we have in Jesus. Jesus, who's now risen from the dead, sat at God's right hand in heaven, and is uh, interceding for us. We've also been told that he's done everything necessary to make us clean before God, to wash us, to make us holy, to purify us. That his one sacrifice on the cross is all that's necessary for us to be welcomed as we draw near to the holy living God. But of course, you cannot see any of that. Unlike, actually, the old system in Israel, where you had a a human priest on earth in a physical tent making actual sacrifices that you could see, there you could trust your eyes. It was all happening in front of you. But now we're asked to take it on faith that Jesus, once for all, has done everything necessary to make us right with God, to open the doors of heaven wide. That's the unseen present. I do think that's in view here. If you just look your eyes down to chapter 11, verse 6. Chapter 11, verse 6, he comes back to the principle, without faith it's impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. So if we're going to draw near, like we were encouraged to a couple of weeks ago, we need to actually trust that God is there and the way is open through Jesus. That's why 10 verse 22 said, let us draw near in full assurance of faith. Faith being trusting God with what you can't see. Now I've had a few pastoral conversations over recent weeks where this has been exactly the sticking point. I was speaking to a small group leader who described how few folk in her group were still not feeling like their consciences were really clear 
that their past was really wiped clean. They'd confessed their sin, they'd trusted in Jesus, but just didn't feel clean enough to draw near to God. And it's right, isn't it? Sometimes our emotions or our sense of self or the trauma we carry from the past, sometimes that takes time to catch up with the gospel reality. Sometimes we struggle to forgive ourselves, struggle to believe the worst of our shame could really have been dealt with, struggle to believe that we're forgiven. But the question actually boils down to who are you going to believe? Do we believe the voice of our feelings or the voices in the past that say we're not worth anything? Or do we believe the promises of God? Will we live by faith is the question. That's the unseen present. By faith we can draw near. But we've also been hearing in Hebrews about this unseen future that God has promised. Um, So uh, the the rest of that verse I was reading in 11 verse 6. 11 verse 6, we must believe God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Remember, that unseen future was what had kept this church going in the past. 10 verse 34, you joyfully accepted the plundering because you yourselves knew you had a better possession and abiding one. It's just like that conversation I began with, with that child. It's easy to see the cost today at school, harder to imagine the new creation is really worth it. But that's where we need to learn to live by faith. We'll see much more of this next week. So if you find it hard to trust that unseen future, come back next week. It's all about that. All through the history of the Bible, God's people have been forward-looking, trusting big promises for a future that they don't yet see. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. I wonder how much our lives are shaped by hope in God's promised future? Be a good question to reflect on. Our time is nearly gone. Um, just say verse three is an illustration that um, there are some things in, in life and in the world that we do have to take on faith. Verse three mentions how the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. As in, you can make observations about this world and you can work back pretty far as to what happened But the very first moment when nothing went to something, well, you can't just work that out from what is seen. We need God to tell us. There were no witnesses. There was no matter to to record it. We, We have to take God's word in various areas. We do about the very start of creation, and we need to about the very end of creation, that he will bring a new creation. But for now, more on that next week. For now, let's go on to our third and final point. Um, So we've seen so far, until Jesus comes back, God wants us to endure in living by faith. What is faith? It's trusting God about what we can't see, taking God at his word, even when our eyes can't see it. And finally, given we find that pretty hard to do, our third point is, why is it worthwhile? Why is it worth living for God, trusting him about what we can't see? Well, very simply, this life has always and only been the life that God approves of. 
That's what verse 2 is saying, is our kind of second big headline. Verse 2, for by it, as in by faith, the people of old received their commendation. That is to say, pick literally any figure in the Bible that God is pleased with or commends or approves of or declares righteous, and you can be sure they are someone who's living by faith. It's the only lifestyle God commends and approves of. And it's the opposite lifestyle to what we saw back in chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews. Do you remember when they were journeying through the the wilderness, um, uh, that generation of Israel? The reason they didn't make it to God's rest was unbelief. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as they did. So God disapproves of that unbelief, that refusal to trust him about the future, and, and approves of this living by faith. And to get our heads around that and to kind of prove it with some examples, we've got three brief ones to look at now. Um, Just very very brief, um, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. So then, pick Abel. Why was it that God was more pleased with Abel's offering than Cain's one? If you go back to Genesis, uh, Abel being the first person after the fall that we hear God being kind of pleased with, well, it was not because Abel was offering an animal sacrifice and Cain was offering a plant-based alternative. Sometimes people say that. Oh, it must be because it was an animal sacrifice. He was a, he was a shepherd, whereas uh, Cain was an like, agrarian farmer. That wasn't the difference. Genesis doesn't say that's the key difference, and Hebrews doesn't either. Now, the difference is Abel offered his sacrifice by faith, and Cain didn't. Now, we're not given loads of detail in Genesis if you go back and look at it. But actually, it is clear that Cain is not living by faith because when God speaks to him just after the event and warns him, careful, you need to turn back from the way you're living, Cain ignores that voice, goes and kills his brother. Likewise, Enoch, the second example. Again, he's another kind of odd one out. So Abel was the odd one out in those brothers. Abel trusted God. Cain resented him for it. Enoch is another odd one out. There's this whole list of people in Genesis who lived a long time and died with no reference to God. Then there's this one guy who did trust God, who walked with God, who pleased God. He was taken up and didn't die. How come? Because he lived by faith. That's what made the difference. Or very finally, what about Noah, verse 7? In lots of ways, Noah brings everything we've said this morning together. Verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God... So there's God's word. Concerning events as yet unseen, there's the trusting God in what you can't see, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. There's the acting on what God has said about what you can't see. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. In lots of ways, this example does capture everything, doesn't it? Noah received a word from God about something as yet unseen, this coming judgment by a flood. And of course, given he was living in a dry and dusty land, miles from water, he had a straight decision in front of him. Would he live based on what God says or what his eyes say? Would he trust God about an unseen future or would he rule that out because he can see the present and it sure doesn't look like it's going to rain? But Noah, 
fearing God more than the opinions of his neighbours, trusting God more than the evidence of his eyes, picked up a hammer and started building a boat in a desert. And it saved him and his family, trusting God. That language of he condemned the world, I think it's just saying he, it, it just showed up the fact that the rest of the world wasn't taking what God said seriously. Kind of showed in starker colors the culpable refusal to have faith in what God says when God warned of the judgment. I hope you see the point of those three examples and we'll get much more as we go through the rest of the chapter. Each of these individuals pleased God. How come? Were they perfect? No. Read the articles, read the examples, you'll see that. But they did trust God. They took him at his word. Faith is the only life of which God approves. And it is striking that each of them were the odd ones out amongst their peers and culture. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Habakkuk, the Hebrews, and now us here in Edinburgh. So what's it going to be then? Are our lives going to be shaped by fear of the cost we can see or by trust in the promises we can't? It really is as simple as that. That that little child had it really clear. I've got the cost of not belonging at school, of feeling like I don't belong. And I've got the promise of a new creation eternally with Jesus. Hebrews 11 will be telling us that always the right way to live has been to take God at his word. His word about the things we can't see right now, like Jesus reigning in heaven at God's right hand, and his promise about the future that hasn't arrived yet. We said at the start that every stage of the Christian life, there's a challenge and a a temptation to shrink back and not live by faith. Perhaps right now we could take a moment and just reflect on whether we personally and those friends and families that we are able to encourage, whether we are wanting to be shaped by the cost we can see or by God's promises that we can't. Let's take a moment and then I'll lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the realism of your word, that you know exactly how it is in every cultural moment. We do admit that we struggle often with the shame and reproach of being associated with Jesus in a world that doesn't always like him. We struggle with fear about suffering and costs that may come. And so we pray very much that you would help us to endure to not throw away our confidence. Help us to do that joyfully because we know there is great reward. Help us to trust what you say about the unseen. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.